The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have given us a time where we can worship you. Thank you that you have ordained a time where a church can gather and praise of your name. Lord, we thank you for the cross, the cross of Christ who, through your Son, has saved us from our sins. And in the resurrection has given us new life in Christ. Thank you for a time where we can hear your word preached. We can sing songs to you. We can fellowship with one another. So we continue to do that now, Lord. Pray that you'll bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. This time, ages four and five can dismiss out the side of our church here. Please turn in your copy of God's perfect and holy word to Philippians chapter one. We'll be looking in verses 27 through 30 this morning. People respond to the Bible in typically one of three ways. First, they either deny it or ignore it. So they have the attitude of the Bible. Who, who reads that? Who, who believes that? I, I don't believe that. I'm, I'm going to live this way. Tw- or second, they twist its meaning. They say the Bible, I know it says that, but... What it really means is this. And so they twist its meaning to suit the life they would like to live. So they deny it or they twist it. Or third, they submit to it in obedience. This is what the Bible says and this is what I intend to live by. It's a very unpopular thought to suggest that something outside of ourselves would and should teach us what is true and false, would guide us in what directions we should go. This is what the Bible does. It teaches us truth about God. It teaches us truth about ourselves. It should shape all of our thoughts, all of our philosophies, all of our beliefs, all of our morals, all of our ethics, all of our decisions. It's very unpopular to say That something outside of my autonomous being should direct my life. That something outside of me would have complete authority over me. And we believe as Christians the Bible has authority to instruct all areas of our life. We believe as Christians that we are not the ultimate voice in our life, but God is through his word. In today's text, we're going to see instructions from Paul to the church in Philippi about how they should live in such a way that is worthy of the gospel. I mean, such a thought of telling someone, this is how you should live, is controversial in itself today. This is what Paul gives to the church. Paul has greeted them 
in the first chapter so far. He has encouraged them in their salvation. He has addressed his situation in prison. And now he turns his attention in the letter to instruct them. Look with me in chapter 1, starting in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Here's the main point of the passage this morning that I want you to walk away with. The main point of the passage, and thus the main point of the sermon, is this. The church is to live worthy of the gospel by standing and striving together in unity and by not being afraid of opponents as she suffers for the gospel. That's a mouthful, so I'll say it again. The church is to live worthy of the gospel by standing and striving together in unity and by not being afraid of opponents as she suffers for the gospel, which means, Abner Creek, we are to live worthy of the gospel as a church as we stand and strive together in unity and by not being afraid of opponents as we suffer for the sake of the gospel. Paul's primary concern for the church is that they, their lives would be worthy of the gospel that they claim to believe. That's his point at the beginning in verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now last week, Matt led us through Paul's perspective while in prison, which ultimately left Paul saying, if I get to live, that's more fruitful living in Christ. If they kill me in prison, then I get to be with Jesus. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And ultimately, Paul isn't completely sure if he will see these believers in Philippi again. And so he says in verse 27, only, in other words, whatever the case, whatever happens to me, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you. His primary concern for the church is that they would live lives that reflect the fact that they, they really believe what they claim to believe. That they really have been transformed by the gospel. The root word here that Paul uses for manner of life, let your manner of life here, the root word he uses in the original has this, this idea of citizenship. Let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel. The Christian's ultimate citizenship is in the kingdom of God. Paul wants these believers to live in accord with their true citizenship. He wants them to live as though they are citizens of heaven. If we are citizens of America, we live by American ways. If we are citizens of Rome, you live by Roman ways. And these Christians are citizens of heaven ultimately. And Paul says, live your citizenship out in the kingdom of God. In other words, it doesn't make sense for citizens of heaven 
to live like residents of hell. So his concern is that they would live worthy of the gospel. Now, living worthy of the gospel in this text, it doesn't mean that somehow you, you earn the worthiness of the gospel. Instead, living worthy of the gospel means that your life fits in line with the gospel. That your life matches up to gospel realities. That it's suited for gospel truth. In other words, if, if your life is marked by actions and beliefs that dishonor God and misrepresent the gospel, that is itself a life that is not worthy of the gospel. The life doesn't match what the mouth professes. And within a church, we help each other stay on track with living lives that are worthy of the gospel. So if I'm living in unrepentant sin, you have a responsibility as a fellow member of this church to lovingly come and inquire, to talk with me, to justly call me to repentance. And likewise, me to you. This is how the church interacts with one another. We live to help one another live lives that are matching the truth that we say we believe. The church isn't just a place where we come together as friends, though we are. The church is a people who help one another grow in holiness so that we go to eternity smelling more like Christ and not the stench of sin. In the church, we help each other stay on track. We help each other walk in ways that reflect the glory of Jesus and not the world. We live lives worthy of the gospel. And it means, yes, we talk to talk, but we also walk the walk. And that's the call that Paul has for the church today. But how can a church do this as a whole? I mean, after all, Paul is giving this command to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel to the church as a whole here in Philippi. And so how is the church in total supposed to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel? Well, lots of ways. I mean, the Bible is chock full of commands that would help us live worthy of the gospel. But in this text, we're going to see two ways in particular. Paul calls the church to live worthy of the gospel. The first way is this. First, the church can live worthy of the gospel. The church is to be unified for the gospel. See this in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul emphasizes the point here of unity in the church. You can hear it when he says, live worthy of the gospel by standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. And she functions in this unity, notice in the text, for the faith of the gospel specifically, verse 27 says. The church is to be unified for the gospel. Do you know one reason why many are disinterested in the church? Well, fundamentally, people are disinterested in the church 
because of dead hearts that love darkness over the light, as Jesus says. Dead people do not love Jesus. Sermons are boring to dead people. But another reason many are disinterested in the church is because they only know of its disunity and pettiness. They see a group of people who get together and from their perspective they get together and end up griping and complaining. Now, I want to be honest with you. I've been here a little over a month and we can praise God together. From my perspective, I don't sense that spirit here in the church. Like, honestly, I, I, I don't sense the spirit of griping, complaining. Like, it is a breath of fresh air to be in a church where that's not taking place. And so praise, praise God for that. But there are loads of churches, many, maybe you have experienced it before. There are loads of churches that gather weekly in complete disunity. I mean, fighting over preferences, grumbling over how things should be, but they're not. Complaining about why the church isn't growing. And yet, when a new visitor comes, you know, they sit cold and distant, never saying anything. Why would anyone want to join a group of people who are self-centered, disunified, complaining and grumbling? And Nobody would want to be a, with a group of people like that. I'd rather debate politics over breakfast with grumpy old men. Why would anybody want to join a group of people who get together to grumble? Be disunified. A church that is living worthy of the gospel is a church that is unified, but not just unified about anything. Like, there are a lot of churches that are unified over petty things, and they run people off. No, a church is to be living worthy of the gospel in unity, unity around the gospel. In Abner Creek, I would just encourage you in this that I praise the Lord for you on a weekly basis that you seem to be a unified church that I get to be a part of in this interim time. But I would encourage you to remember that the gospel is what unites us. The gospel is why we sing. The gospel is what we preach. The gospel is why we disciple. The gospel is why we love people. Listen, gospel ministry is not about growing a church. Gospel ministry is about loving people. And we come together in unity to love people. Proclaiming the gospel is how we evangelize. The gospel is why we gather together. And everything else can take a seat in the back. Paul calls us as a church to live worthy of the gospel by standing in one spirit, striving with one mind, Side by side, in unity, all of which is done, and don't lose sight of this, for the sake of the gospel. It's really important that churches work intentionally hard to promote and to guard this like-mindedness and unity within the church. If we do not work hard to remain unified in the gospel, we will most definitely Focus on other things. 
And this doesn't mean that church members cannot have differing opinions on things. However, differing opinions should be on second and third level issues. Not first level critical issues like the gospel being most important in the church. The gospel is foremost first level issue for the church. And the church must be in complete like-mindedness and spirit about this. The church may disagree about wall colors. The church may disagree and have differing opinions over how the Lord's Supper is distributed. The church may differ on opinions over Sunday school curriculum or outreach strategies. The church may hold various opinions over music style or discipleship programs, but what the church cannot be divided in is the message of the gospel and the faithful preaching and teaching of it. She must stand in complete unity of that if it is to be a healthy church. For Paul, the church is living worthy of the gospel if first the church is living together in unity for the sake of the gospel. And notice in the text, two actions from the church operating in unity, standing and striving. You see these in verse 27. Let your manner of life be worthy so that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. If the church is to be living worthy of the gospel, the church will be unified And in her unity, she will simultaneously be standing and striving for the faith of the gospel. Now, how does a church stand and strive at the same time? I mean, they seem to be working against each other. You're either standing in your place or you're striving towards something. How does the church do this? Let's take these one at a time. If the church is to live worthy of the gospel, the church will stand for the faith of the gospel. There's a children's game called Red Rover. Perhaps you played it as a kid. The point of Red Rover, Red Rover, is you have two lines of children facing each other. And both lines, they link arms or they hold wrists, right? And the point is to call another child from the other line... Now, Red Rover, Red Rover, send Benny right over, right? And, and then little Benny comes running over, and he tries to break through the linked arms of the children. Well, sometimes there's always that kid that's bigger than everyone else. Maybe you were that kid. And you call this person over, and you know that when this person starts charging, they're going to do one of two things. They're going to break that link or they're going to break your arm. And so what typically happens is everybody grips really tightly. And you close your eyes and you, 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 you embrace yourself for the impact. And normally what happens at the last second when this big ball of a child is running toward the line, the, the children grip their teeth and they hold their wrists really tight and they close their eyes and the last second they, they step out of the way and let them run through Right? Not breaking my arm today. You win the game based upon your ability to stand strong, united, without wavering. And in similar fashion, the church lives worthy of the gospel when she stands strong without wavering for the sake of the gospel. 
Standing for the faith of the gospel means the church doesn't compromise on the truth of the gospel. Standing for the faith of the gospel means the church knows what the true gospel is and she does not waver on it. And the culture and society that we live in would love to redefine what God has already defined in Scripture. Am I right? I mean, currently the, the world would love for the church to break her biblical stance on all sorts of issues that have gospel implications. I mean, what is life? When does it begin? Will the church stand in unity to say that God has knitted together real life in the womb that should be protected. Abner Creek will. The role of men and women. Will the church stand on the truth that God has made both man and woman equally in his image, but yet different in role and function? We will. On sexuality... Will we stand on the truth that God has made two genders, male and female, always distinct and never interchangeable? Abner Creek will. On marriage, oh how the world would love to redefine what God has defined as marriage as being one man and one woman alone for all time. On the authority of Scripture, the oldest trick in the book is, did God really say? And Satan still uses that trick. Does the Bible really say? Will we stand upon the truth of Scripture having complete authority over our lives? And we will. On the gospel, will the church compromise its core message and reduce it to humanitarian service for society? Or will the church stand upon the truth that Jesus did not come just to make life better, but Jesus came to save sinners? Abner Creek will. There are all sorts of issues that come against the church as she seeks to stand firm on biblical truth. And Satan and the world would love nothing more than for the church to close her eyes, to grip her wrist, and to step away at the last moment. And Paul's call for the church is to live worthy of the gospel is a call to the church to, to stand uncompromisingly for the pure biblical faith of the gospel, no matter how the wind blows, no matter the intensity of the wind. God calls the church to be the immovable boulder that the waves crash against, not the shifting sand under its current. Now the church throughout her history has survived and persevered by God's grace through men and women being committed to stand against various attacks from the outside. One of the more recent and close to home examples of this standing on gospel truth can be remembered within the Southern Baptist Convention within the last century. And this is a piece of history you'll want to know. If you like history, you'll probably like this. If you don't like history, hang in there because I think you need to know this piece of history. We are a Southern Baptist church in the Southern Baptist Convention, and this is a crucial piece of history to know. 
The Southern Baptist Convention, founded in 1845, which our church is a part of, has seven seminaries. Seminaries where men and women can go to be trained for gospel ministry. The first seminary for the SBC was founded in 1859 in Greenville, South Carolina, and then moved to Louisville, Kentucky, and became the flagship first seminary for the Southern Baptist Convention, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. This is where, this is where I received my seminary training. And when this seminary was first started, it had strong confessional, strong conservative roots in theology and, and biblical truth, orthodox teaching for many years. But as many things happen, if you're not intentional to guard it, as those leaders began to die, new leaders came in, so did liberalism. And the school began to slowly slip down the slope of liberalism into no longer holding true to the true core beliefs of the gospel. And this trend toward liberalism continued throughout the early 1900s. It reached its height toward the end of the 20th century in the 80s and 90s. I mean, students, young men from, and women from SBC churches would go to Southern Seminary believing core truths of the gospel, and they would get on campus and the professor would say, hey, tell me what you believe. And a student, this is a real story. A student said, well, I believe that Jesus died on the cross, that he, he, was, ro- he, he was raised again that three days later. I believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And the professor said, you really believe in a bodily resurrection of Jesus? And the young man said, yeah. The professor laughed. He said, just give us six months. You won't believe that anymore. Southern Baptist Convention was rightly concerned about the theological shifting that was taking place at the school. And they no longer held to the core doctrines of the faith. The, the board of directors began to strategize about how they might turn the school around. And they knew it started with leadership, but, and they believed that if they, if they could just get the right conservative, orthodox man in there, then he could lead them back to the core truth of the gospel. In 1993, the board elected a man named Albert Moeller to become their next president. Moeller was a strong conservative evangelical leader. He was young. He had his work cut out for him. Immediately, the liberal faculty and student body hated him. They didn't agree with anything he believed, or most things, the most of the core doctrine things. They didn't want him there. The board wanted him there to help turn around, but the school didn't. He faced hostile times, much opposition, much opposition, regular protests, boycotts were normal in his day. And one student asked him, Dr. Moeller, the entire faculty doesn't like that you're here. The whole student body almost disagrees on some of the conservative things you believe. How in the world do you expect to turn this ship around? And he replied, I'm either going to turn this ship or I'm going to sink this ship. And later in that year, what became known as Dark Wednesday, the whole faculty voted to state their position on Dr. Mola, this newly elected president. And Dark Wednesday has named that because the entire faculty, except for four people, voted against Dr. Moeller. This is in the Southern Baptist Convention, in the flagship seminary of which we support in the 90s. And the first address as president to the school was a 
as a whole at the beginning of the academic year, Moeller preached a sermon called, Don't Just Do Something, Stand There. In it, he preached on needing to stand against the tide of liberalism and things that would pull us away from the core truths of the gospel. And I just want to read a brief section of his sermon to illustrate Paul's call to the church to stand on necessary truths of the gospel. In this, he said, Don't just do something, stand there, reverses the conventional wisdom of the world, but it puts the emphasis rightly. Southern Baptists are now much more feverishly concerned with doing than with believing, and thus our soul is in jeopardy. The people of God must reclaim a theological tradition which understands all of our activity to be founded upon prior doctrinal commitments. Do we stand for God's truth and do so without embarrassment? May we answer that question with the humble confidence of Martin Luther and say, Here we stand. We can do no other. God help us. Don't just do something. Stand there. And within a few years, by God's grace, Moeller turned the ship of Southern Seminary around. And students like myself and others who have come through this church have benefited from the orthodox, conservative, gospel-centered seminary that Southern Seminary is. It's now one of the strongest, if not the strongest, conservative evangelical factories, uh, faculties for a seminary. It's filled with world-renowned scholars who are committed to biblical inerrancy and the core doctrines of the faith, and the school is flourishing. Moeller stood a ground on the gospel for the sake of the gospel when the winds of the culture were blowing straight into his face. Even when it was unpopular. God has called his church to put a stake in the ground to draw a line in the sand on first level issues like the gospel. He has called her to live worthy of the gospel and any church living worthy of the gospel is a church that is willing to stand against winds of falsehood. And so I ask us today a question that he asked in his sermon. Will we stand for God's truth and do so without embarrassment? But we also see in the text that if a church is to be unified in the gospel, she not only stands against attacks, but she strives for the faith of the gospel. If standing is the defensive stance against the attack, striving is the proactive offense of the church. Standing is embracing the cultural winds and not being moved by them. Striving is interacting with the cultural winds and guarding the truth in the midst of them. Not only does the church become reactive to what's attacked against, but it is proactive. This means the church plans and anticipates the concerns that will come. We don't just wait for the attack. We plan how we will respond when it comes. Striving and planning enables us to be ready. One example of this striving together that many churches have done in recent past, in the recent years, concerns marriage. As more and more hostility comes over the issue of marriage, many churches in the Southern Baptist Convention and other conservative churches have worked hard to strive to clarify their stance on marriage in their statement of faith and constitutions and church covenants. This is a proactive approach to guard biblical truth. This is how the church lives worthy of the gospel, by being unified for the gospel. And that requires both standing and striving. 
In our standing, we defend the gospel. In our striving, we protect it. This is, the, this is the first way that Paul says live worthy of the gospel. A church that is unified. The second point of how the church can be living worthy of the gospel is this. The church is to be unafraid of opponents. Look at verse 28. He says... Uh, I want you to be standing firm in one spirit, one mind striving, 28, and not frightened by anything by your opponents. Have you ever shrunk back in fear from stating your belief or witnessing to someone, to a friend or to a neighbor? Have you ever asked yourself in that moment, shrinking back in fear, what am I so afraid of? I mean, we live in a country where physical persecution is extremely rare for the believer. I mean, what's the most someone will do to you for sharing your faith, for sharing the gospel? I mean, they may ignore you. They may mock at you. They may laugh at you. They may tell you they don't want to listen to you. They may threaten your life. You might make the situation a little awkward. I mean, what are we so afraid of? Paul says the church living worthy of living the worthy life of the gospel of the church, unafraid of our opponents, unashamed of our beliefs. What's the worst thing that could happen? The absolute worst thing that could happen in this life is that they kill you. And we just saw last week in study where Paul says to live as Christ, to die as gain. The worst thing that they can do to you is lead you into the presence of your Savior. That's, that's, that's all they've got. Yes, it's scary, but perspective overcomes fear. Perspective overcomes fear. When we fear others in our faith, we have lost some degree of perspective. We are, we are seeing through the eyes of man what this person may think of me, what this person may do to me. And not through the eyes of God. And there's, there's a huge difference from going from, they might, they might kill me, to all they can do is kill me. Perspective overcomes fear. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Having a godly perspective allows the church to walk worthy of the gospel because the church stands unified for the gospel and it allows the church to be unafraid in her standing against opponents. And you really believe that? Of course. We have no shame in believing what God says. And friends, if you're here today and you're not a believer, I would just, I would want to be unashamed in my call to you today to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact is, you cannot live a life that's worthy of the gospel. You cannot keep God's commandment. That's the whole Old Testament, in part, is to show us that we cannot measure up to the standard that God has put in place. 
And friends, if that's you today and you feel the weight of such a call on your life and you feel the inadequacy of of your own ability to meet that standard, the call for you today is to trust in Jesus who met that standard for you. And then he met it for you and then he died for for your sake for the standard that you didn't keep. And it worked because he rose again from the grave. The call for you today is to repent and to believe in Christ. This is what the church believes unashamedly. Now notice the result in verse 28. Not frightened by anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. This is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Why would the church standing in unity be a sign of destruction? I mean, that's what it's talking about. I mean, what is this sign of destruction? The the text says this is a clear sign of their destruction. What is that? The church that's unified and standing and striving while not fearing opponents is a clear sign of destruction for opponents. Now, how does that happen? Because when they've given the opponents, when they've given the church their best blow, when they've struck as much fear in her as they could and she stands unwaveringly, they know it's just a matter of time before they're doomed. It's like a boxer who prepares for months and months and months to fight against his opponent and he gets in the ring and he's given everything he's got in that first round. He's sweating, he's bleeding, he's punching, he's swinging, he's, he's dancing, he's, he's all around it and the, the bell rings, the first round's over and he looks at his opponent and his opponent's unfazed. Like, I just gave everything I had to try to beat this guy and he's not even, he's not even stumbling. When the opponents of the church give everything they have to attack the church and the church stands unified and unafraid, they know it's just a matter of time for their destruction. They may attack from every side. They may burn literature. They may try to redefine what God has already defined. They might try to incite fear. And what else can they do? But the text also says that This standing in unity unafraid is the sign of the church's salvation. This is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now why would the church be being attacked, being unafraid, why would that be a sign of our salvation? Look in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. In God's grand design, he has planned not only for the church to believe in him, but to also suffer for his sake. Which means, church, there will be suffering in your future. He has granted this, the text says. Notice it says, God has granted belief. Praise the Lord for that. But if it's true belief, God, it will be followed by some sort of suffering and persecution. God has granted that you should not only believe, but also suffer for his sake. 
as Christians live out their lives and they stand on the truth of God's word, it will be controversial. I'll just say this and we're almost done. Hopefully you're not someone who has a life that's filled with controversy. That you're not someone that's a, stri- a strifle person. You know, hopefully you're not labeled as the controversial one in the room. But church, if you have a faith that never offends, if you have a faith that never brings any controversy over what you believe, you may need to check to see if it's real Christianity. Because the faith of Jesus got him killed. You tell your friend, you tell your neighbor that you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And they say, well, what about, what about my God? You th- my God surely is okay, right? And you say, no, only Jesus. That will offend. The Christian faith is a loving faith, no doubt. But when we stand on truths that are offensive, it will be controversial at times. We don't seek this controversy. We seek to remain faithful. Jesus says the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Suffering and persecution is, as a Christian is how God planned the Christian life. It makes no sense for preachers to say the ultimate goal of the Christian life is earthly prosperity. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Hear the words of Christ himself. He told what the path would be in John 15.18-20. He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Does the world love you? He goes on to say, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Does the world love you? Do you think and act just like the world? If so, you may be part of the world and not of Christ. Do you suffer for your faith? And listen, I know that no one's killed in America on a daily basis because of being a Christian. Suffering for the faith here is vastly different than around the world. But do you suffer reproach because of your faith and life for Christ? I'm sure the thinkers could tell you from this week some Ways people responded to them that were not so welcoming. Church, we are citizens of heaven. This earth is not our ultimate home. If we find ourselves as misfits in this kingdom, the best explanation is we are suited for another kingdom. The kingdom of God. And Paul says that the church would live worthy of her true citizenship in the gospel by being united in the gospel, by how we stand and strive, and by not being afraid of our opponents in the gospel, even in our suffering. 
And this is the type of living ultimately pointing to their destruction and assures us that we're on the right track. Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Our Savior suffered and died, but was raised to glory. And it is a privilege to walk in his footsteps. So my last call for you today is Abner Creek, live worthy of the gospel by standing and striving in unity and by not being afraid of opponents as you suffer for the gospel's sake. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise that you have granted belief and you have granted that we would suffer for the sake of Christ. Lord, I pray that it would be our demeanor, perspective, like the believers in Acts who walked away from suffering, rejoicing that they suffered for the sake of Christ. Help us to live worthy of the gospel in our standing and our striving so that all who see our works would glorify you and would fall in submission to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have time of just reflection. We're going to ask you to sit quietly to reflect upon the truth that God has given us in his word. And then we're going to stand and offer our praise to him. I would invite you if, if you would Feel the Lord leading you to respond in this time. I will be here at the front. I'd love to pray for you. If not, I'll be in the back as you exit the building. I'd love to help you in any way I can. Uh, walk with you in your faith of Christ. Talk to you more about what it means to be a Christian. But in this time, let's reflect upon God's truth and let's worship Him as a result. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.